One afternoon, when he was seven years old and living in a refugee camp in Iraq, Ahmed Najim fell into a hole. The hole was so big, or he was so small, that his big brother, Kamran, who had been walking on the road just next to him, could not find him. That's Ahmed's memory anyway, his brother calling for him, Ahmed crying too hard or his voice too soft for him to hear. Finally, Kamran does spot him and reaches down to lift him out. But Ahmed is stuck, deep in the mud, and he starts to panic. It was a really, like a really, really scary moment. So Kamran starts singing to him, and not a song that his little brother likes. I really hate this song. So he was singing it just to make me angry, just to take my attention, to make me fight with him and not remember about this whole. And it worked. Ahmed forgot his fear, and he let Kamran pull him out. When peace came and the family moved back home, they live in the northern part of Iraq called Kurdistan, Kamran continued to watch out for his little brother. At school, he would fight with Ahmed's bullies. In the family restaurant, he'd do Ahmed's shifts along with his own. Ahmed is eight years younger. He'd tell him, go outside, be a kid. But then Ahmed started to see a lot less of his brother. When war came to Iraq again, the Americans invaded. Kamran bought a camera, and he would go to the front lines to take pictures. I still remember one day one of the local newspaper published Kamran's photographs, and he was really proud. And he showed that to my mom, and my mom said, Kamran, congratulations, but I have a suggestion for you. Why you are not going to buy a taxi and be a taxi driver? Kamran got really, really upset that my family couldn't understand what Cameron was doing. And Ahmed watched his brother change. He was hanging out with foreign journalists. He was drinking alcohol. He started dating a Dutch aid worker. All these things that his father did not approve of. And my father told him that uh, he will not be his son if he continued to do his work. Cameron moved out. And in his brother's absence, Ahmed took a different path, the path of his older brother, Najat. He became an instructor at Najat's driving school, and like him, a pious Salafi Muslim. I was really, really strong Salafi. Uh, I had no beard because I was kind of really young, but I was visiting mosques and reading Quran. And then one morning, he's sitting in his office. Reading Quran, waiting for my students to come. And someone called me and said, hi, I'm a taxi driver. I brought something from someone that I have to give it to you. And I said, uh, who, who's this guy that sent me stuff? He said, I'm just a driver, I don't know. There was a box, and uh, when I opened the box, uh, there was a dessert. It was his favorite dessert, baklava. And uh, I took the dessert out, and there was a small paper. Uh, it said, uh, Ahmed, happy birthday. It was his 21st birthday. But Ahmed did not believe in celebrating birthdays. His Salafi faith told him it was individualistic and wrong. That was the first time in my life to hear someone to tell me happy birthday. There's only one person in Ahmed's life who would send him a birthday greeting that he did not want. The same person who would sing him a song that he hated to anger and distract him. Cameron called me uh, 10 minutes later and said, Ahmed, happy birthday again. I, I know that you hate me to, th to say that, but you deserve it. And I don't want you to say anything. Just come meet me. We will make a small party for you. 
So I was preparing myself to respond by Quran. This is not allowed. I respect that you are my brother, but birthday parties is not allowed. It was it was really made me nervous. I couldn't say, oh, Cameron, thank you, or Cameron, I hate you. I'm Gregory Warner. This is Rough Translation, the show that takes you to far-off places with stories that hit close to home. Sometimes you know someone who is so persuasive that it can almost be scary to let them into your life. They can bring out a side of you that you weren't sure you even had. Kamran was that person, not just for Ahmed, his little brother, but for so many people around him, until one day he vanished. And everybody had to figure out not only where he was, but who they would be without him. We're back. We're back. <clears throat> We're recording. Testing, testing. One, two. Karen Duffin has been reporting this story with Kamran's close friend, Sebastian Meyer. He's collected recordings that you just don't normally get from Iraq. It is the sound of a country at war with ISIS, but from inside the life of one family. Their terrifying phone calls, their urgent conversations, recorded in real time. Quick warning about that. We do hear the sound of gunfire. And there is cursing in this episode. The story of Kamran and the people whose lives he changed when Rough Translation returns. Actually, you know what? I'm just going to pop this sweater yeah, off. Yeah, do whatever you need. It's going to get hot in here. So. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Delta. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where many people do the same things you do. That's 300 cities where people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. And 300 cities where people miss someone in one of Delta's other 299 cities. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring people together, but to show that we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. Blackface in a student yearbook. Black fishing on Instagram. You got Israel and anti-Semitism. You got Israel and colonialism. You have go-go music versus the gentrifiers. On Code Switch, we take the subtext of race and make it text. So come chop it up with us. We're back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. Karen Duffin has spent years following the story of this Iraqi photojournalist. And we're going to start it right where we left off, with Ahmed receiving that forbidden birthday gift. Here's Karen. Ahmed is staring at this birthday baklava, thinking, Kamran knows I'm a Salafi Muslim now. He knows I can't accept this. So he decides that he will go see Kamran. But when he gets there and Kamran tries to tell him happy birthday, Ahmed will give him a Quranic talking to. This is not allowed. Birthday parties is not allowed. We have to pray. We have to go to mosque. Ahmed drives the two hours to see Kamran. But when he gets there, there is no birthday party, no birthday greeting. He was so smart. He was not talking about the birthday. Hmm. He was explaining why he, he was doing photojournalism. He started telling Ahmed about why he walked away from the family to become a photographer, why he wasn't doing what their father insisted. I always have thought that I have something a little bit more different, not more important, I can't say this, 
but different than what they asked for me. This is from a video of Kamran telling the story that he shared with Ahmed that day. So, um, I was Kamran says he started out as a war photographer, but this thing happened that changed him. I was covering an, an explosion, a suicide bomb in Kirkuk. And then I, I phoned my agency, say, okay, I'm on my way, going to file the pictures. So they say, well, we're not going with that story. We have uh, another story in Mosul. His editor said, look, there was a bigger bomb somewhere else, so we're going to run those pictures instead. That was the moment that I said, hold on, like, there is something wrong with what I'm doing. Like, we are actually making our money by the number of people getting killed. He tells Ahmed, no one is telling the full story of Iraq. And there's no training school, no agency for Iraqi photographers in the entire country. So I'm building one. I have started Iraq's first photo agency. We'll train local photographers and place their photos our way of seeing Iraq in outlets around the world. We have to show the beautiful side of Iraq as well. Kamran brings Ahmed to his new office, and Ahmed realizes Kamran has built himself a new family. There are all kinds of people coming in and out of the agency. His business partner even looks like he could be their brother. Okay, here we go. Stop laughing, stop laughing. Sebastian Meyer is a photojournalist from New York. They met when he was on assignment in Iraq. And with the same regularity... He and Cameron are the same height, same dark hair. The smugglers continue to spill. Stop laughing! (laughs) Same big smile that's both earnest and mischievous. They lived together, worked together. Okay, here we're going to start again. They were together so often that people started just referring to them as a pair. They were always mentioning their name together. Kamran introduced Sebastian to Kurdish food, the Kurdish language. You want me to tell you what he taught me how to say? <laughs> yeah. In Kurdish? Sure. Okay. We cannot say any word of this in either Kurdish or English. Wow. Yeah. It's offensive at every possible every level. Possible. Yeah. Sebastian taught Kamran American music. Brought him home to New York to meet his mother and then to D.C. where they sat down at the Lincoln Memorial and read through the Gettysburg Address together. As my mom was always saying, they were brothers. They were real brothers. Ahmed was not surprised to hear that Kamran had convinced Sebastian to pack up his entire life and move to Iraq to help him build this agency. Kamran, he could change your, your mind really easily. Kamran could talk people into almost anything. One of his first shoots with Sebastian, Kamran talked their way into an oil smuggler's den. You know, these guys who live in, in, in the shadows who don't want to be photographed were so happy to have him around. Kurdi Khsaqi, Englishy, do you speak English? Here they're interviewing foreign day laborers in Iraq. Kurdi and Arabi. I'm Misri. And you can hear as Kamran walks through this crowd of workers, he's trying to make sure that he greets each person in their own language. This is Arab family. Salam alaikum. There was something about Kamran that was just so captivating that you just wanted to be part of it. Now Kamran told his little brother Ahmed he wanted him to be part of this agency too. He says, we're calling it metrography, and this is the kind of work that we can do together. What I can do as a, as a photographer to show that these are actually individuals like us, they have a family, they have mother. We, we talked a lot. Kamran tells Ahmed, I want your help. 
we have some activities that I want you to help me. And I was not, I was speechless, I couldn't say anything and I was just thinking about what I'm doing right now, why I am rejecting all the appreciation. Kamran is inviting Ahmed into this whole different way of thinking about who he can be. But he's scared. If he agrees to Kamran's offer, his own family might reject him. So Ahmed decides he'll keep his job at the driving school. But every chance he gets, he also starts secretly helping out around the metrography offices. Kamran was saying, Ahmed, I'm counting on you. Uh, you have to be in coordinator in this project. You have to be in administrator for this project. You have to go to security forces department. Kamran starts to introduce him to foreign journalists, to the Dutch girlfriend who will later become his fiance. He invites Ahmed to parties. And metrography starts taking off. Their photographers are getting assignments from the Washington Post, the Times of London, Der Spiegel in Germany. And then they get invited to present at this big photo festival in the country of Georgia. A dozen of their photographers were going, and Kamran wanted Ahmed to come too. This would be the first time Ahmed left Kurdistan. Kamran rarely talks to his father at this point, but he makes a trip to their family home just to tell him, I want to take Ahmed to, with me to that trip. And my father said, do not make him to be out like you. He said, no, 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 I'm teaching him how to stand on his feet. They had a really big fight. And uh, he said, Ahmed, what are you going to say? And my father was looking to my eyes and Cameron was looking to my eyes. I born at this time because Cameron gave me an option. You want to be like past or you start uh, quite new. And I said... Benaz, um, Benaz was my sister, I said, Benaz, prepare a bag for me. I saw that a small smile on Cameron's face, and when we went out, my father threw a flip-flop to us. A single flip-flop. And said, fuck you, you are not my son. And we all flew over to Georgia, and I mean... Every single one of them had been a refugee multiple times in their lives. We had, you know, slept in filthy checkpoints together. Like, we'd just done, like, a lot of rough living. And there we are with cameras over our shoulders. There's a quartet playing string music. And we were sipping white wine and discussing photography. I have such a smile on my face just remembering this. Like, they stole the show. Our slideshow played and like standing ovation at everybody and Cameron and I just sort of like I just remember standing with him and looking back at this scene and just thinking like look at what we've done look at what we built yes <laughs> Ahmed says Cameron never left his side throughout the entire festival and he was always telling me Ahmed break the rules make the new rules but better than the past one but Ahmed was worried like what if he loses the rest of his family I was thinking about my father's reaction and feeling what what I'm going to do Cameron just kept reassuring him one day they will also understand the value of what I'm trying to do
Kamran's vision of a photo agency that told more than war stories seemed particularly suited to Kurdistan, where they lived. Kurdistan is part of Iraq, but separate. It has its own borders, its own government. And it, it had been a pocket of peace in Iraq until June of 2014. As many as 500,000 people have been forced to flee... The Islamic State took over the city of Mosul. The second city to fall into the hands of Islamist militants. Just three hours south of where they live. Thousands of Iraqi families left homeless and scared have fled to the Kurdish region in Iraq's north. And then... ISIS advanced into Kurdistan. That day, Ahmed and Kamran are in their car, and Kamran gets a phone call. It's a Kurdish military commander, and he tells Kamran the Kurdish forces are about to launch a counterattack against ISIS. And he invites Kamran to come cover it. So Ahmed drops Kamran off to meet the commander in the city of Kirkuk. Kamran hugged me when he left. Kamran goes with the Kurdish forces to the front line where they're launching this counterattack. He's with another journalist friend, and he turns on his camera mic. They're moving with the soldiers closer to the center of the battle. They stop in a canal. I think they saw you. It's getting dangerous. Maybe we should leave. Kamran moves to his friend's right and a bullet whizzes right past his head. Holy shit. The next bullet hits Kamran in the neck. Kamran. Kamran. Dwaska! Kamran. Seara Baka! Datakaka! Dawara! Adabatanaka Hala, it's Nabia! He says to his friend, I'm dying. No. Esta Sartakam, Esta. I love you all. Uzba. Samaka. We left Cameron was at two, I think, and uh, I drove to my home. After dropping Cameron off to cover that battle, little brother Ahmed had gone home to wait. And after waiting a few hours, he fell asleep. One of those weird afternoon naps where you go to sleep when it's light and you wake up and it's dark. And uh, when I opened my eyes, there was some some noisy some some voices of people knocking the door, and I was hearing some people is crying, crying, and I, I slept again. Finally, he gets up and goes into the living room. His mom is crying. Uh, the first thing that I saw on the TV, Cameron Najem, a Kurdish photojournalist, just killed in Kirkuk. He picks up the remote and I change it to NRT TV. Same. Camera's photograph, 
Cameron killed by ISIS. Change it, PUKTV. Cameron killed. The only place he can think of going right then is to metrography, to the agency. When Sebastian hears the news, he's on assignment a few hours away. Tons of people are calling, tons of text messages coming through, people offering to help. Sebastian also drives to the agency. And by the time they both get to the office, there are hundreds of people there in the parking lot, in the streets, and they're all crying and hugging them. But I was saying, no, 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 I I don't want to believe in that. Ahmed does not believe that his brother is actually dead. We don't believe it. I don't believe it. Because Cameron is smart. Cameron is smart. I was always saying, if he can talk, he will survive. Then... The journalist who was with Kamran in the battle shows up at the agency, and he tells them what happened. He says Kamran got shot in the neck, so the Kurdish soldiers put him in the back of a pickup truck, but they didn't latch it. So when they took off, Kamran rolled out the back. The commander, Sadhat, and his men, they jumped out of their armored car to try to grab Kamran, but they came under fire and had to retreat. Sadhat told him, Kamran was dead when I left him. And then the Kurdish forces released a statement. Saying that he was, you know, officially dead. Very early in the morning, say, yeah, about six in the morning, we all get in two different cars and drive to Kirkuk. The police in Kirkuk said they knew where Kamran's body was. So Kamran's brothers and some of his friends drive to Kirkuk, and they pull over to wait for specific instructions about where to go. They get out of their cars to wait. No one's talking. It's getting hotter. We're standing there, and then all of a sudden, Burwa's phone rings, and Burwa is Kamran's best friend from, from growing up. And he picks up, and you just... We have a recording of it. Burwa, it's me, Kamran. It's Kamran on the phone. And he starts starts shouting, Kamran, 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 Kamran. I mean, we just went crazy. You know, everyone's trying to grab the phone out of everyone else's hand. Everyone's trying to shout something at him. And Kamran tells them, find Sadhat Khadr. That's the commander he had been with the day before when he went to cover that battle. He said, go and fight Sadhat Khadr to negotiate with ISIS. It becomes very apparent very quickly that we're not, we're not out of the woods yet. Kamran's captors take the phone back. When he said, who is this? Or like, who are you? They respond, we are the Islamic State. The captors are speaking in Arabic, so they hand the phone to the one person who speaks Arabic there, which is Kamran's older brother, Adi. And Adi is this very tough guy. He's a former bodybuilder. He's been to prison twice for attempted murder. On this call, he sounds scared. He's calling the ISIS guy Habibi, which means my dear. And ISIS tells them, you need to get Sadhat not to attack this village near Kirkuk. Don't attack the village or we're killing Kamran. 
So now they have to find Sadhat before he sends in his fighters. So they're looking around, like, who has Sadhat's phone number? No one. They ask Kamran for Sadhat's phone number. Kamran said, I don't know, but the start, the number is 150. I just find the fucking number. And then they hang up the phone. Now they have to find Sadhat, the commander, and get him to pause the war in order to save their friend. We now are headed straight out to the battlefield, like to the to the front line. And there's a lot of checkpoints, and it's you start to move into more and more dangerous territory. They find Sadhat at a police station near the front lines. He's in the parking lot. They jump out of their cars, explain what happened, and hand him a phone. He dials the number that ISIS gave them. They pick up and he says, you give me back the journalist. And they say, the only thing you need to know is if you attack us, we're going to kill him. And they just descend almost instantaneously into an argument. You attacked us first. No, we didn't attack you. You're working with the Americans. We're not working with the Americans. We're Iraqis just like you. Well, fuck you. Well, fuck you. And at one point, they call back and Sadhat says, it's Sadhat. And they're like, no, it's not. And he's like, it is me. Like It's me on the phone. And like we know what Sadhat sounds like. And it's not you. And then suddenly Sadhat was like, fuck, we're being attacked. Like, I got to go lead my troops. And so he left. And then all of Kamran's friends were just sitting there. And they're like, um... I guess it's on us now. I guess the negotiations are over. They have to figure out how to get Kamran home. And they will become the detectives in a case full of false leads and double crossings and a chess match of tribal loyalties when Rough Translation returns. We'd like to thank our sponsor who brings you this message. Discover, who alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites. Discover believes there are some things you just need to know. It's just another way Discover looks out for you, not just your account. And best of all, social security alerts are free for Discover card members. All you have to do is sign up online. Learn more at discover.com slash free alerts. Limitations apply. Support also comes from NPR sponsor Wix.com. Rough Translation connects listeners to untold stories from around the world. With Wix, create your own professional website to connect your own stories. Choose a template you love and customize it with your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story or someone else's exactly the way you want. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's wix.com slash translation to get 10% off. So how many candidates are running for president? 22. Maybe more to come. It is a lot to keep track of, which is why the NPR Politics Podcast is hitting the road to introduce you to all the people running for president. Join us on the campaign trail as we interview the candidates to ask why they are the best pick for president. Follow along this spring and summer by subscribing to the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Gregory Warner. We're back with Rough Translation. This may be obvious to point out, but if Kamran were a Western journalist, 
kidnapped off a battlefield in Iraq. There would be calls to the FBI and the State Department. There's actually a U.S. presidential appointee for hostage affairs. Someone professional would step in to coordinate this investigation. But the vast majority of journalists kidnapped in war are local. And there's often very little the authorities do. So after that one failed negotiation with the military commander, that was pretty much the end of any official help for Kamran. So his friends speed back to the photo agency. They're going to do this on their own. So we go back to the office and immediately just set up a command center in the upstairs room. We've got a bunch of whiteboards. We've got a big map of the province of Kirkuk. So we could trace everything in terms of geography. The first pin in the map goes on the city of Hoija. That's where Kamran called them from. We created this impromptu rescue team. There's this photo of them in the command center. They're huddled around a table, some standing, some sitting, all serious faces, all intensely focused on this cell phone that one of them is holding. They're listening to a recording of the phone call from ISIS. We're picking over every word, trying to figure out what tribe he's from, what region he's from, why did he answer the phone without giving the full Islamic greeting. The team now coming in and out of this office at all hours are people who, two days before this, would have never been in the same room. You have both sides of Kamran's life. Sebastian, the American, Yantina, his Dutch fiance, and then a bunch of journalist friends, like... There's the editor of a local paper who has a lot of on-the-ground sources that might be helpful. And there's also his religious family. There's Najat, the businessman who runs the driving school, Adi, the bodybuilder ex-felon who's now a chef. And then there's the little brother, Ahmed, who is not a journalist. He's also no longer religious like his family. And He's not quite sure where he fits in. The team of Sebastian and me and Yantina and also the family team. From the friend side of the team, they get one of their very first leads. On day one, someone saw Kamran at 6.30 a.m. in the back of a pickup truck. And then later that day, he sees three ISIS fighters eating sandwiches, saying Kamran was killed. But then the day after that... Another friend finds an eyewitness. A doctor who said that he saw Kamran. He's like, you know, I treated this Kurdish photographer, a Kurdish journalist who came in. His name was Kamran. He had a neck wound. All that I was allowed to do was give him painkillers. But he needs surgery, and it's important. That lead matches up with another lead, the same exact description of Kamran's wounds. And Sebastian is collecting all of this intel. What's, the, what's your system? Do you have a spreadsheet? Oh, right, yeah. So I have an Excel spreadsheet. And I, every time I get a piece of information, I write it down. The spreadsheet was something a hostage negotiation expert advised them to do. He told them, take good notes. If nobody writes this down, it'll be forgotten in 10 seconds. And certainly we'll be gone by the next day. He also told them, keep your emotions in check. But meanwhile, no one's sleeping. It's also 100 plus degrees. And Kurdistan is at war, so there's a water shortage. Gas is being rationed. And every day of that first week looking for Kamran, they're getting a different picture of what's happening. He's at the Hawija checkpoint. No, he's actually at a sheikh's house sleeping on a bed. No, no, no. He's being held at a high school. Some people were trying to sell them information. Other people were just telling them things they thought might make them feel better. It was hard to know what to trust. Every piece of information was, this is the thing that will 
lead to Cameron's release. So we threw everything at it. Mm. Everything, um, you know, time, emotion. It was like, go. Go. Yeah. Every single time. If you go hell for leather on every piece of information, and then the next piece, you're like, I'm not going hell for leather on that. I'm I'm not going to believe that necessarily. Yeah. How do you know that's not the piece of information that is the right one? Right. Right. How do you pick the one that you decide, I'm going to sleep on this? Mm-hmm. On the whiteboard, they keep a to-do list. Yeah, it says on the board, who will ask ISIS re-Kamran? That just is like so meeting minutety. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, who's this? Who who in the room? Raise your hand. Who who's gonna talk to ISIS? Who will talk to ISIS is actually the most important question. And here's where the religious brothers side of the team might be able to help. They have friends with ties to people in ISIS. There was a lot of sympathy for ISIS amongst very conservative Muslim Kurds. Mm. A way for us to access ISIS was going through those ISIS-sympathizing Kurds. Most ISIS fighters are locals. They're Iraqis. But it's not like Kamran's brothers can just call up and say, hey, you know your friend who's in ISIS? Can we grab dinner together? In this moment, people with ISIS connections are being jailed. If you know ISIS people, you're hiding it. We are you know, picking apart the tribes who which tribe is with ISIS, which tribes are against ISIS, which sheikh can we get to, how do we get to them? Eventually, a cousin does manage to get them a meeting with one of the most prominent sheikhs in Kirkuk, near where Kamran was kidnapped. He has a lot of influence. They just have to convince him to take the risk of contacting ISIS on their behalf. So all of the men in the family will go to this meeting. Kamran's father, all of his brothers, even Ahmed is invited, which he's a little surprised about. They were always telling me, Ahmed, you are still a kid. Even though he's now 25. I am not allowed to be involved in so many meetings. So on the two-hour drive to Kirkuk, Ahmed is trying to remember everything he can from his Salafi days so he can impress the sheikh. We were walking inside the mosque, and when we entered the door, it was a big hall. And uh, the head of, of the tribe was sitting in the end of the room. He starts citing passages from the Quran. And the sheikh turns to him. He touched my hand and he, he asked me to sit, to sit beside him. He didn't ask my father to sit beside him. I was sitting there. I was watching my father and my older brothers, and I was, <laughs> I was checking with them, like, you see, I'm a, I'm a big man, I'm sitting beside the sheikh. And <laughs> they were not happy about it. They can't just start asking about Kamran right away. In order to win this guy over, they have to first pass a hospitality test. As a, a cup of coffee, you know, in, it's, uh, in Arabic rules, you have to drink it. The sheikh is Arab, Ahmed's family is Kurdish, and Kurds tend to drink tea, not coffee. In fact, this is the first time Ahmed's ever tasted Arabic coffee. And I said, okay, thank you. And, and you know, Arabic coffee is really strong. It's really strong. And the head of the tribe was thinking that I really like it. On his sixth cup, Ahmed's hands are shaking, his heart starts racing. And finally, Najat, who's a businessman and has worked with Arabs, signals to Ahmed, just shake the cup and they'll stop pouring. And I had a fight with Najat. Okay, do I look like that I really a big fan of Arabic coffees? I said, why are you not telling me? Like, I'm dying. <laughs> and then uh, he started laughing, but I, I, I absolutely 
was sick for two days. That was a hard night for Ahmed. But that sheikh does agree to help them. He reaches out to some of his ISIS-related contacts for them. And for the team, it feels like maybe they're getting good at this. Finally, a week and a half in, all of these contradictory and confusing leads start to point in one direction. On day nine, a friend hears Kamran was in ISIS court three times. He was found innocent, so he'll be released soon. On the same day, a tribe tells a different friend that Kamran's release is imminent. Another family member hears the governor of Kirkuk has good news. A brother finds out that his imam is arranging for Kamran's release. And a different brother hears that Kamran is already in a car on his way home. This is five pieces of intel from five different sources independently confirming the same thing. Kamran is coming home. That night, everyone gathers at the family's house. It's the first time in years that many brothers have been in one place. The friends also join. Everyone is telling their favorite Kamran story. Kamran's sisters keep hugging and kissing Yantina, his Dutch fiance. They're talking about all the kids she's going to have when Kamran returns. The brothers even risk teasing Adi, the bodybuilder ex-felon brother, for calling the ISIS captor deer, calling him Habibi. Early the next morning, all of them, Sebastian, Yantina, Ahmed, the brothers, a few friends, they pile into cars and drive to Kirkuk. And we were laughing, we were singing. And me and Seb, we were always uh, uh, singing the, the song of John Denver, uh, Country Rose. So on our way to Kirkuk, we were changing the lyrics of the song to uh, Kirkuk Rose. Uh, take me home to the place I belong. But we were not saying West Virginia, we were saying uh, Suleimania. <laughs> I'm so sorry for the John Denver, but we did this one. <laughs> we will apologize to John Denver for you. Yeah, yeah, okay. Take me home, country road. They get to Kirkuk, call the governor. All right, where should we go to pick him up? They go to a cousin's house to wait. We just sat in a house in Kirkuk and waited and for the you know for what what to do next. They have lunch, no one's talking. And then we just waited for hours and hours and hours. And then we then we realized nothing was happening and we had to go back. They got back into the car and they drove home. We were totally silent and no one said anything. That night at the metrography office, a bunch of Kamran's friends show up. They're drinking and playing guitar and singing until the wee hours of the morning. Metrography has become this place for these raucous memorials. But on this night, Ahmed is having none of it. He's furious. Who are all these people laughing and joking while my brother is a hostage? He shouts at Sebastian and storms out. The kind of despair that follows this much hope is a poisonous kind. Kamran's impromptu search team starts blaming each other. Why did you lie about that lead? Or why didn't you double-check it? 
But really what they're saying is, how could you let me hope like that? Being hopeful is killing us. Next time on Rough Translation, a romantic story from Kamran's past threatens his release. And his search team sits down with ISIS. We were told, you know, you're going to have the worst fighters, you're going to have the, the, the nastiest people. And I promise you, mm-hmm. I promise you, like, this time is not the other times. Like, I'm yeah. really uh, sure about it. I got a call at 1 o'clock in the morning being like, Ahmed's in hospital. One of his brothers has thrown him down the stairs. That's next time on Rough Translation. In the meantime, you can see photos of Kamran and by Kamran on our site, npr.org slash roughtranslation. That includes a photo that Kamran took on that last trip to the front lines. Today's show was produced and edited by our Rough Translation team. That is me, Jess Jang, and Marianne McCune with Karen Duffin. Thanks also to Sebastian Meyer for reporting and editing. So many people listened and helped us with this episode. Thanks to Hannah Rosen, Nancy Updike, Luokowski, Michael May, Audrey Quinn, Autumn Barnes, Sana Krasikov, Jess Benko, Jason Basso, Birwa Hijani, Dana Asad, Suruthi Pinamineni, Pajar Mohammed, and Ayub Nuri. Our interpreter is Hussein Ibrahim. Sebastian Meyer just published a photo book about Kurdistan and Kamran. It's called Under Every Yard of Sky. A link is on our site. The Rough Translation executive team is Neil Carruth, Will Dobson, and Anya Grunman. Aaron Register is our project manager. Mastering by Andy Huther. John Ellis composed music for our show. Mike Cruz scored the episode. If you want more stories like this in your podcast feed... Tell a couple of friends about the show. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us continue what we're doing. Drop us a line at roughtranslationnpr.org or on Twitter. We're at Roughly. I'm Gregory Warner. Next time, part two of Kamran's story on Rough Translation. <laughs>